Hello, and welcome to Season 5 of Captain's Corner. We'd like to take a moment to let you know how grateful we are to you, our listeners, for making this podcast such a success. We believe that Season 5 will be our best yet. We have a great lineup of speakers for you to enjoy. So we ask that you share this on your social media with your friends and family, and of course, give us a like and leave a review. Thank you. We hope you guys enjoy the season. Today on the podcast, we have Jillian Penhale, the Executive Director of Created. This fifth season of Captain's Corner is sponsored by PFS Financial. That's PFS Financial. And they use biblical principles to guide you in growing and stewarding your wealth. But more importantly, PFS will guide you in fulfilling your search for significance and help you establish a legacy that will embody your passions. For more information, visit pfsfinancialfirm.com. And our thanks to the CEO of PFS, J.D. Pelecchia, who serves on the Tampa Area Command Advisory Board. And he's the chair of our finance committee and is a wonderful, godly man. You can hear an interview that we had with him on the fourth season of Captain's Corner. We're thankful for his team and the way they're coming alongside of us to bring you today Captain's Corner. Just a couple of notes as we get started here. I want to express my appreciation to so many people who shared our podcast as the first two episodes from this season. The first one with Commissioner Israel Gaither and the second one with Major Dr. Marion Platt. It was a blessing to see how far those reached and uh, we're still kind of putting the numbers up. Um, we'll see if they get into our top five. I'm guessing they will. But our appreciation is some of you who also even wrote to me and to others um, to say how meaningful those podcasts were to you. I invite you to go back and listen to them if you haven't listened to them and share them. It means a lot to us and it's helpful to us if you subscribe to this podcast. We don't have many reviews on Apple that would be or in Spotify. It'd be a blessing to us if, you, if you've been touched by this podcast. So just share, to subscribe, and to um, leave a comment. That's one thing you could do for us. Our thanks to our sponsors who kind of make it possible for us to think about doing this. There's some of the the little bit of staff time that's used really gets taken care of by that um, by the, our sponsors. But it'd be uh, helpful to us to think about expanding this further and by you sharing, commenting, um, that makes a big difference. So thanks for that. And just thanks for your feedback on those two interviews. And secondly, on the interview that's coming out today with Jillian Penhale, it's a great conversation about partnership and anti-human trafficking work. We just want to acknowledge at the front of it that we did it on Zoom and some of the recording quality there's a you know is a little low and there are a few glitches in it. So we kind of know what we need to do to make that better in the future, but we just want to acknowledge that at the start here. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks so much to all of the people who you know, subscribe and are part of this podcast. We we appreciate you. God bless you. Welcome to Captain's Corner. Captain Andy Miller coming to you from Tampa, Florida. And we are excited today to have on the podcast the Executive Director of Created Ministries, an anti-human trafficking ministry here in Tampa. And that is Jillian Pinhale. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
Yeah. Well, we're, we're thankful for the kind of parallel many ways that we connect. Um, you're a partner agency in town. You've done some really creative things through Created, but also you have a history in the Salvation Army and family who serve as Salvation Army officers. So you hit on multiple sides of our audience. So I'm excited to hear some of your history and experience that led you to serve as you are right now. So, so Jill, just tell us a little about yourself. Where do you come from? How did you get involved with uh, this ministry particularly? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I was born and raised in Salvation Army. Um, so that's kind of my history. I feel like I'm from multiple places. Yes. Uh, but I've been here in Tampa since about middle school. Okay. Um, graduated from Jefferson High School here. <coughs> Sorry. And um, went to USF. Okay. So kind of during that time, I it was really kind of in my college years um, where I was at the time um, doing a lot of different mission trips and having experiences with the Salvation Army. Yeah. Uh, mostly in the Caribbean. I also was in Peru for about six weeks. And um, really through those trips, um, I feel like God really opened my eyes to social justice issues and things that were happening across the country. Yeah. I started really diving deep in that in college of just figuring out income inequalities, what's happening to women across the world. And some of the things that were really interesting on all of those trips, for some reason, there was always a person that would pull me aside and talk to me about what was happening to women in that city. Okay. And so kind of in that time, I was mostly in ministry working with children. And I thought that that's what, what I would do. I never wanted to work with women, which most people who work with women, I hear say, um, okay. but I just never um, but every time, like, so this happened when I was in Haiti, this happened when I was in Jamaica and also in Peru that like a woman officer or somebody in the community there would pull me aside and say, you know, um, most of the stories were about the impoverished women in the community and what they had to do to survive, specifically talking about prostitution and trafficking and just yeah. different things that were happening. So that really started opening my eyes to just the, the issue of human trafficking in general. I'm yeah. um, just seeing it firsthand in those places um, and really kind of understanding it as um, a way that people were trying to get out of poverty and that people were exploiting the vulnerabilities of others. Yeah. And so as I would come back to Tampa, I um, would just kind of research and try to figure out like, well, what does this mean? What does this look like? And so I spent a lot of years just kind of learning about the issue. Um, and kind, and then through that found some organizations that were doing work that I thought could be replicated in Tampa. So the first thing was, um, when I was, when I was, a, uh, I led a team that was from the Salvation Army actually of young adults to start, um, going into the strip clubs in our city. Okay. Um, cause that was the one thing we identified as, you know, Tampa's known for strip clubs, unfortunately. Right. Um, stop there and tell, have, describe some of that, like, yeah. uh, I mean, what make? I mean, I was extremely shocked uh, yeah. when I moved to Tampa. Um, uh, I've lived all over. I mean, I've lived in Texas, Kentucky, yeah. Georgia, Chicago, um, Detroit, but I had never seen anything like what I saw in Tampa. Yeah, true. And I mean, I, similarly, I, I mean, I before we moved to Tampa, I was from Oklahoma, and so that we just didn't. That was not a thing. <laughs> like, right, right. So in Tampa, though, it's interesting as people who live in Tampa we've become so desensitized to the fact that there's strip clubs really all over the place in Tampa. I mean, the last, so it's, it's, they're a hard thing to like keep statistics on because like right. they're constantly closing and opening. But I think the last time that somebody counted, there's about 52 in like, between like in Hillsborough County and like Pinellas County. Wow. And so that's a lot. And yeah. so, um, 
really, I mean, in Tampa, people say that it's because, um, you know, with the sports teams and things like that, like a lot of the clubs are over down by Raymond James. And right. it's just like part of that culture. Right. Is right. How it started. And then um, over the years, I mean, it's, it's been known. It's I think from from what I've read and from what I've heard, it's like it's we've really been known for that for multiple years. And so it's just kind of become part of the culture here. And we're actually known as like a sex tourism destination. Um, and so it's something that like those who are looking for that will travel to Tampa for those things, right. um, which is one of the reasons that Tampa itself is such a hotbed for not only the strip clubs, but also um, human trafficking, prostitution. Um, we're also one of the hubs for the pornog- pornography industry as well. And it's really like that kind of culture that was started years ago, um, trying to make laws that make it easier to run strip right, clubs, right, right. like that. Um, so I, I, from what I've heard, the things that make Tampa like a spot for it is the sports team, um, we have national airport and all of those things. Cause it's an easy place for people to get to. Right. Um, but it's also just a part of our history at right. this point. Let me so, jump in there because like that, yeah. that's part of what I've had to understand too. Um, my own experience, like, um, first time I drove to work at the Salvation Army my first day, I drove down Dale Mabry. And so then I saw the most obvious things in Tampa, like the, the clear, like big, bright light, Las Vegas looking like clubs there. But then as I've gotten to know the city better, um, and as I've learned back roads <laughs> and and to avoid Dale Mabry at all costs, except during COVID-19, <laughs> um, I've, I've seen like, oh, well, there's something right there. And that's just a little sign. And, and that's just, this is a back row. And, and Tampa's the way that even our, um, um, certain codes were in a certain time, like there are often, there's even, uh, industry or restaurants or, or little like convenience stores in the middle of neighborhoods. And, and then I've even seen like attached to those are, are strip clubs there too. So, um, I've, I've been surprised. Now, let me just, I just wanted to add that as a comment, but one thing that I've seen too is this, and, and this, we might get in trouble with a few people with this, and that's okay. I think the nature of being a Salvation Army officer and leading the, leading a ministry for anti-human trafficking means we get in trouble. Um, but we have this thing in, um, that happens in this city that is like an institution and it's Gasparilla. Right. Mm-hmm. And while there's this great children's parade and I know people who are part of various crews and it's this yeah. great, but, the literal idea of it is, is that this is when pirates come into town and, you know, and, and take the, the key of the city from the mayor and then rape and pillage the city. I mean, like those things are said, like I yeah. said, and it's, it's like a joke and it's just fun. And, but yet what happens at Gasparilla, I hear is like people dress scantily <laughs> and, um, and it's like a Mardi Gras type of feel. I mean, this, and, and, and I think a lot of people would think of Gasparilla as closely connected to the identity of Tampa. Um, do you see it? Is that a part of the historical situation? I mean, that's a really interesting point. I don't, I don't know enough like history to say like for sure, but I mean, I think it is, I think one thing that is true of Tampa for sure is that the objectification of women in our culture is just very open because right. of things like that. And also, you know, just the clubs and things, it's just not seen as like that big of a deal. Right. And so I think that that's like a very, which is like, like we've already said, like, that's not necessarily true everywhere. So, I mean, I mean, the objectification women is true, but I think that specifically in our city, like it probably does have something to do with that, where it's like, we, we really celebrate 
um, and have these times during the year where like it's almost encouraged to like dress up and do these different things. And so it just desensitizes, I think, the population more and more. Right, right. So mm-hmm. I interrupted you a little bit there. You were talking about, uh, you were kind of uh, alluding to how your own yeah. history of leading Savage Army teams to kind of go into the strip clubs was a part of like the way you got into this. So sorry, thanks for letting me yeah. interrupt you. No, yeah, yeah. no, thank you. Um, so, so yeah, we had what I was very, I would say when I think back to like how we started our first club outreach, um, I've learned so much then. And so it's almost funny to think about, but back then, like I, we had no idea what we were getting into. And I remember calling. Um, so we were like, okay, well, we've heard that there's teams that go into clubs. I don't know if there's any in Tampa, but I was like, we had four that we wanted to highlight. We wanted to go in and bring Christmas gifts to all the women. So I was just like, well, I'm just going to call the managers and see how many women work there. Cause I was like, practical, whatever. Uh, so I remember calling the clubs and the managers answering and saying, and I remember asking, you know, how many women work there? We want to bring gifts for them. And the first manager was like, what do you mean? And I uh-huh. was like, we just want to bring Christmas gifts. And they were like, okay, well, do you mean how many women are on like our list or like how many on an average day? And I, remember, I was just like, well, just tell me how many are on your list. And it was like 200, wow. 200 women. And so I was just like, I was just floored. And then I called four different ones and it was the same answer. It was 150 or 200 women. Um, and so we gathered like 500 gifts and tried to bring them into these clubs. But we real, I realized from that, that what they do is they have um, women who work at the club and they have a list of girls that they just call every hmm. day to see who they can get to come in. Hmm. And so that's like the list that they were talking about. But on average, it's less women than that that are there on an average night. But but yeah, so I just remember being floored by that. Um, and we started from there doing like, um, prayer and also just like bringing gifts into the women and trying to get to know them. Um, through that experience, I also learned that there already were some club ministries happening in Tampa as well. So we were able to start partnering with them. Right. And I know that like right now there's teams through many different churches, but of all the clubs that have been identified in our area, all of them are being reached by a ministry, um, created ourselves have four of those clubs that we go into. Um, but yeah, that was really, that was eye opening to me. And I, and that really brought me down the road of like, well, let me figure out like what else is happening in Tampa. After I saw, after I, we had been doing club outreach for a while, I started looking for areas that, you know, where women were also being exploited and how this was affecting our city. And I started learning about prostitution and how, um, how big that is here in Tampa. And so, um, and it's obviously connected in the clubs because, you know, I've never been in a club on an outreach where there's not um, you know, illegal activity happening. I think the managers don't want us to think that, but there is, um, you hear the stories of the women. And, um, that's one of the, I, that brought me to learn about created who created has been in Tampa for about 12 years. Okay. They started primarily as a street outreach organization and they're still the only team that does regular street outreach to the women that are on, um, Nebraska Avenue. And we also go to Hillsborough Avenue in a couple areas. Um, but if you're from Tampa, you know, Nebraska Avenue is the main right. area in Tampa for prostitution. Um, and so I really um, started learning about this organization. And I just um, I just love that they just literally did what they say they do. They said they're four women who are being on, who are out on the street. And so they just go out and serve them on a regular basis. And so I wanted to be a part of it. So my very first street outreach, um, I, I remember... They were doing actually a big, so one thing about Tampa too, is we constantly have big conventions and big events that come into our city. Right. 
I actually started Street Outreach the week of the RNC back in 2012, I think. Republican National Convention. Yeah, yeah, this was so a big thing that happened in Tampa. Yeah. yeah. And so any convention, whether it was the RNC or the DNC or whatever that comes to a city, right. um, women are brought in for that event. And right. so to prepare for that, created, did outreach every single night that week to try to meet women that were coming in and um, give them options and help um, rescue those if they could. That was my very first experience. So I went actually a couple times that week and driving up and down Nebraska, we met a woman and I just remember, um, you know, I had been through a training of like what you should say, what you should do. Um, but on the spot, like those things don't really come to mind. Um, but so we went in and, and we we're just trying to talk to her and she, as we walked up to her, she sat down and she just started crying, mm-hmm. and, which my training did not prepare me for. So me and the other volunteer just trying to um, comfort her as we could and trying to give her. So for outreaches, which most organizations do outreach do this, but we bring gift bags. So these bags are full of toiletries and things for the women that they can utilize. Um, So trying to offer her a gift bag. And I just remember her sitting there and crying and rocking back and forth and saying, I'm just a trick. I'm not worth anything. Mm. You don't want to talk to me. Um, And so I wish I could say that like, you know, we were able to talk to her and um, kind of walk through that with her and comfort her, but she just got up and like ran away from us. And so just processing through that and feeling like, um, you know, I just remember getting back in the car and us processing that and thinking like, you know, I'm so glad that created's out here. I'm so glad that like, you know, there's at least somebody trying to offer hope. And I just remember God saying to me like, no, that's where I want you to be. Wow. This is where I want you to be. And I was like, no, it's so great that created's out here doing this. And I just remember hearing that from God. And at the time I was actually working for the Salvation Army. Yeah. Um, and I was serving through their mission department at their divisional headquarters um, and learning. And the great thing about that job is I was actually able to learn a lot about anti-trafficking um, and try to teach those um, educations in some of the cores throughout the state. So I was going around and doing trainings about that and a few other issues. Um, so I was able to kind of through that start partnering and volunteering with created. So I, I volunteered there for about two or three years. Um, while my is in nonprofit management and okay. I, um, and then just kind of felt like it was time to switch over. I just, as I, as I volunteered, I just kept feeling like, no, this is where I need to be. Um, I want to be connected to the women in our city, um, that are suffering and I want to be able to like help create, um, and, and, and make changes that could benefit them. And so, um, I came onto the staff team I created about six years ago now. So that's how I got connected. And I think one thing, um, that's remained true for all things. And that's kind of like one of the ties through my whole story is I do think, you know, being raised in the Salvation Army, I, you know, was lucky to be raised in a community where women are empowered, you know, women preach and women are in leadership. Right. And so um, that's always been like a common thread of, you know, wanting to see that empowerment for others. And, right. um, you know, having a mom that, you yes. know, told me that I could, I could do those things too. I actually tell people, I'm like, I actually didn't know that there were churches who didn't agree with women in leadership. And so I was, and other people are like talk at a Christian event and like people are like talking about their churches. And, and I was just like, I remember saying something about like women not being able to preach. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like It was so foreign. Like I didn't understand it at all. So yeah. it's like that thread of like, um, having that empowerment and, and wanting to see that part of what I wanted and what I try to 
was just continuing to see women be empowered um, to change their stories and to kind of move forward and hopefully like make disciples um, as they get to know Jesus. So awesome. Oh man, there's so much there, Jill. And it's uh, great to hear that. Like, um, Okay, I want to I want to back up. Just I, curious. So when you were going through USF, you did 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 you do a social work undergraduate degree? No, my undergrad is actually in sociology. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. So then, did you do the at, was at USF that you did the masters in nonprofit administration? It was at UCF, so in oh, okay. Orlando, and I did it online. So they have a great online program for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and a lot of this kind of came um, as you were working with the Salvation Army. It kind of opened your eyes to this, and you were doing trainings. But that led to the connection to Created. I, I, I was glad you brought up your mom, who's somebody I know and appreciate, uh, Major Janice Reefer. And um, um, and you're, I know you have siblings who are in ministry in the Salvation Army, still very connected um, in your your husband's family. Um, in in your your dad was promoted to glory while you were young. Right. Yes. So, I mean, in, 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 I wouldn't, I, if, you're, if you're willing to, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And, and that led your mom to take on a role that's different sometimes because for a Salvation yeah. Army officer, because she might not have been this, uh, it might, it was she, I mean, we always have women in ministry, but right. she became a leader and like her mm-hmm. leadership gifts were recognized by the Salvation Army and still to this day. So mm-hmm. I think that that's, I'd love for you to just go back and talk a little bit about like um, some of that formation within the Salvation Army and even kind of your own unique story yeah. there. And then I want to jump ahead then in a minute to more creative things. Yeah. yeah. So um, as you said, so we, my family, we mostly grew up in um, the AOK divisions, which is Arkansas and Oklahoma, for those who don't know what that yeah. is. Um, so we mostly grew up in Arkansas and Oklahoma, and my parents are actually from there. And okay. so um, they actually met at working at a Salvation Army summer camp mm-hmm. um, every summer. They started dating when they were like 16 years old at camp. Um, and so that was the... Um, that's kind of where we got, were able to go back to as they became officers. And so my dad passed away when I was 10 years old. Wow. Um, so my siblings, there's, there's five of us siblings, which we have a, an oldest, um, brother who's actually our cousin. So most people don't know Michael. Okay. But, um, I'm sorry. I don't. Yeah. Four of us that are within like six years of each other. Oh, wow. Um, and so I'm the youngest of the family. So I was 10. Um, my oldest sister was 16 when my dad passed away. And so, that was obviously watching my mom um, kind of go through that and deal with that. What It's true. So, I mean, I think in any circumstance in ministry, especially like when you're able to do it as a couple, it's very different than when you're looking at it as someone who's single. And so my parents had been core officers for like their whole ministry. I don't know how many years it was at that time. Right, right. Um, but we had been, and, and, and even then, like you, I, you could always see, you know, my dad was definitely a people person. He was like the one who would um, be out joking with everyone and like doing the pastoral calls and like always out meeting people and all that. Yeah. And my mom was the administrative mind who was like keeping this boat <laughs> on track <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. for the things that we need, which is, which was already um, an interesting thing for a lot of people. Cause my mom's just really gifted in those areas. Sure. Um, And so after he passed away, I think like anyone, I I do remember like her going through the process of trying to figure out like, what does she do? Like, what does she do now? And like, how does this look in ministry? Right. Right. We stayed in the same core that we were in. So he passed away in October. We didn't move away from that location until June. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but I remember during that time period, even as a 10 year old, my mom sitting us down and having the conversation of like, 
Um, I could, if, if I felt like I needed to, and I felt like it would be good for us leave the Salvation Army and, you know, get a different job. She was like, but I still feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. I still feel called to like do this. So letting us know, like we most likely will move, which we were all pretty happy about at that point. Um, but, yeah, I'm sure um, you'd be glad to get to a new place. I'd only been in the town that we were in when my dad passed away for less than a year. When oh, wow. We were ready to get out of there. Um, but we, um, at least I was, I guess I can only speak for myself. Um, <laughs> but so I just, re- I do remember sitting us down and saying like, you know, I am going to stay um, in ministry. This is what I do. I still, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like from right. here. But um but trying to, I think one thing my parents always did is they always tried to make us feel like we were a part of Amen. the decision. And so she was saying, you know, if, if you guys aren't okay with that, like you can tell me, which I probably didn't say anything as a 10 year old. Um, but knowing, and there was some, com- there was a lot of comfort in that and knowing that like, even though our whole life had been uprooted, we still had this like full Salvation Army family that was going to be there and support us. And we know, and, I, and even I, re- I, I distinctly remember back then, um, you know, we were in a small core in Oklahoma, but like all the DHQ officers who constantly came to visit and constantly took over for my mom and helped preach and do all those things. Though she's a great preacher and she right. preached almost every Sunday, but, um, and so that was, I still remember that. And then going into, we actually moved to Tampa from there. So I've actually lived in Tampa since I was in sixth grade, which is unheard of Man. for Salvation Army. People kids. are jealous of you right now. So we were, yeah, literally I've only moved as I was at, which is on, we had lived, I've only moved like four times as a Salvation Army kid, which is not, it's yes. unheard of. Um, we lived, the town we lived in before my dad passed away was Stillwater, Oklahoma. And we lived there for six years wow. before we moved to the one that we were at for one year. And then we moved to Tampa for another six years. So my childhood was actually pretty stable. Yes. In, um, God's providence so, in the midst, I mean, in the midst of a really, I mean, it's true. It's it's challenging true. time. I mean, some longevity and, and those relationships were really important to us in the places that we were um, very long. So we came to Tampa and my mom um, was the ADYS. But from there, I think um, as she went through like her process of grieving, yeah, um, being able to turn that into like where she really felt called in ministry, which is like it is like more leadership and administrative work. And like she's a, like a quick decision maker and, you know, has really great discernment and wisdom. And so I think being in a church where women are able to be promoted is amazing for her because she has these gifts that were able to be brought to the table. And I do think, you know, I mean, you know, if life had happened a different way, um, you know, them as a couple would have brought different gifts to the table, but for her to be able to like um, step into those places as a single officer, I don't think she would really have been able to um, in the same way. And so I think, um, you know, that was been that's been really amazing to see and being able to see her her growth and um and and watch that be respected whereas that wouldn't be true everywhere right. and so so yeah that's been that's been really interesting to see and 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 to see that she like is being able to do things that she's passionate about and like serving and and I think in most churches and this can be true inside of Charmaine but it's not always true like you know women can be very much relegated to certain roles and right. so I think um, it takes. Um, women like my mom that kind of break those barriers to show like, um, women can do this. It doesn't have to be women. It can be any woman, but any woman can do this. And so I think that that's been, that's been really awesome to see. Um, as just like, 
as kind of an outside observer, I guess, as her daughter. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's it's helpful. I think there's something historically um, a part of the Salvation Army's basic kind of like DNA that's a part of this. Um, and we don't have time to get into the history of like yeah. how the Salvation Army is involved with um, human trafficking, anti-human trafficking work from, you know, the 1880s. And you know, we started in 1865, yeah. 1890. The Salvation Army comes to America officially, 1890 in Darkest England. William Booth's famous book is written. He starts the social wing. This is all kind of like... These are key key markers, but in the 1880s, there's this human trafficking work, um, part partly with a a journalist named W. T. Stead, who's interestingly, I've just mm-hmm. found his uh, great grandson, who's um, becoming more active with the Salvation Army uh, as a philanthropist. Interestingly enough, um, so like this is a part of the Salvation Army's DNA now. But but from the beginning, though, there was this understanding of women being active in ministry in from the pulpit, which was dramatic for its time, was radical for the time. And I can't help but think that that understanding of women's freedom in ministry, and that was how um, Catherine Booth often couched that language was freedom, free, like it was all, all within freedom yeah. in Christ, and led to the anti-human trafficking work, which we might have used those words then. But even now, like as we've developed to be a denomination that um, holds to evangelical orthodox doctrine but and in, and clearly draws that out of the Wesleyan tradition and for women in ministry too. So I, I think it's awesome to think of how that, that cr- created a context and a foundation by which you could then enter into this ministry that God has clearly set out for your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now uh, just your own little personal background piece too. Um, along the way, you um, met your husband, and I just l- make sure he gets a sh- shout out into this a little, and, and even in your children. And then let's get into a little bit more. And just tell us about Paul and your kids. So yeah, I my husband is Paul, and we met actually through our parents as well. So his parents got moved to Tampa when he was in high school. So working at summer camps together. And that's when we started dating, like many selfish couples do. Um, so he actually, so we went through college here in Um, He's a social worker um, in, in in our city. He um, works through the foster care system. So he works for an organization as an, as an assistant program director. Um, and just is kind of working with parents to help them reunify or, um, or helping children get into safe homes. Right. Um, through that situation, we actually, so Paul, um, we have three children to our two boys are adopted. Mm-hmm. Our first son, Anthony, um, he, his dad was actually Paul's first case that he was ever assigned as a wow. social worker. So Paul was an intern for the organization that he works with now. Um, and then when he came on as a staff team, that was the first case that they gave them. And part of it was because um, that field in the, um, working with kids in the foster care system is like a really, um, female, uh, majority for their employees. And so every time that they get men, they usually try to give them the older teenage boys. Oh, interesting. Um, it's really the best. I mean, it's the best. And that was who Paul wanted anyway. He okay. wanted the older boys. He liked to connect with them and just like have fun. And so, um, his first case was Anthony, who's also Anthony's dad's name. Anthony senior. Mm-hmm. And so they had a, um, they had a great connection and, um, kind of like a mentor relationship. I usually say, but like, he didn't really listen to anything that Paul said, but they had a really great connection. So he struggled a lot and would be like in and out of jail. And every time he was in, he would call Paul, Paul would talk to him on the phone and they would just keep connected up that. So, um, he ended up aging out of foster care. Hmm. And so he had got kind of set up in his new place. And we actually, 
Um, we knew that he was having a baby um, with, a, with a girl who had also aged out of foster care. And I remember actually bringing them milk and diapers and things once the baby was born. So we actually have these photos oh, with wow. uh, little Anthony when he was like two weeks old. Oh, wow. And so um, through different situations, um, he was incarcerated, incarcerated. He called Paul on the phone and um, and let Paul know that um, his son, Anthony, had been removed from the mom and he was asking if we would take him in. Wow. And so... Paul said yes without even talking to me about it. And because <laughs> he was like, yes, we, de we definitely want to do that, which I would have said yes to, I'm but sure. I probably would have asked a lot more questions. Um, and so uh, he, that's how Anthony came to live with us. And I think at the time we were definitely, um, we were, we had been, we had talked about being foster parents before. Our heart was really to like help parents um, reunify with their kids and help be like a supportive role in that process. Um, it just so happened that like um, our our son's parents, um, after they came to live with us, they just um, really struggled and um, didn't really follow through on the things that they needed to do. And um, they actually were really fine with us um, adopting. And so um, after almost three years, we were able to adopt Anthony. And so he right after that happened, we found out a couple of months later that his dad had another son that was on the way. And so they asked if we would be willing to like take him in as well. That's how Ontario, who's our second came to live with us. Okay. And so he's been living up. So Anthony was about nine months old, uh, eight, nine months old when he came to live with us. Um, Ontario, he came home with us from the hospital. Wow. So that was our first newborn. Uh -huh. um, and so kind of in that whole process on the flip side. Uh, so that was, I mean, you know, fostering to adopt is really difficult because it's like you have all these unknowns you never know what's going to happen like will they find a family member that's like actually a better fit for them to go live with right. or something like that and so all those unknowns um but god just gave us a lot of peace about that um we're very open to their family visiting and things like that that whole process we had been struggling i i personally have had like multiple pregnancy losses and so that was just kind mm. of a way that god was building our family sure. and then after after that, um, I ended up having like a surprise pregnancy and that's our last child, Rose, who is <laughs> now 18 months old. And so um, we have three kids. So it's Anthony, Ontario, and Rose. Um, they're all between under six. So Anthony's six now, Ontario's three, and then Rose is 18 months old. Wow. Well, thanks. I, I thought that it's important for people to get that. It'd be really easy just to keep going in what's happened with Created. Um, so... Uh, and it's it's really remarkable that you've been able to do you know you and Paul together raise mm -hmm. start being parents for six years now, um, and that's the same time you've been with Created. So yeah, it was the same actually a month. Anthony came to live with us the month that I had left my job. Wow! <laughs> at, the, at the Salvation Army and started working with Created, so it was literally the same month. So was that hard to leave? Um, you know, the Salvation Army, and one of the benefits that we have is that it's a large organization. I, I don't, yeah. I think there's like at least 40,000 employees in the country, you know, probably four to 5,000 Salvation Army officers. So $4 billion budget yeah. in nationally, which gives us a certain capacity and a certain amount of security. Um, yeah. So you transfer from this large, large organization, church, that's your church yeah. that you're inter connected to, and now you go to this organization that you're leading and it's, um, Probably small. small. Talk about talk about that transition and yeah, was that was that, that scary was, for you? That was very scary, and that was one of the reasons that it took me so long to come to Created because I mean I I really liked my job at the Savage Army. I loved um, part of my job, so I was the missions director, 
and I got to like travel and take like young adults and teenagers on mission trips and like help them have that experience that I so loved in my background. Right. Um, so it was hard um, to give that up. I just knew that I was being called somewhere else. But at the same time, like you said, as a large organization, there's a lot of security there. Um, you know, I, you know, luckily the Savage Army is able to like compensate their employees. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and so I was like pretty comfortable and okay with like how that was going. And I knew, and at the time, so created, this was six years ago at the time created's total yearly budget was like under $200,000 a Mm. year Mm -hmm. and staff actually were coming on as missionaries. So I was going to have to raise my own salary in order to work for created. Um, cause we kind of came out of, um, for created history, for those who know like inner varsity, um, and things like that. So it came out of the leadership of inner varsity. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it had like a similar, um, style in the beginning. So like similar, like those people who run those student organizations, like raise their own salary and things like that. So that's kind of how we were starting just to kind of get our feet, um, created very grassroots. And so that's kind of, part of that history. So I, I, it was definitely a big um, change. And also, um, you know, coming in with like a very small team, I was working at a building, I think DHQ has like, um, maybe two, I don't even know how many employees, but definitely over 100 employees. Right. Um, and so um, to a team that at the time was maybe like four of us. Wow. Yeah. So it was definitely a big transition. I think the one thing that kind of um, did help that was um, seeing, a, you know, being a part of Savage Army, I was a part of churches of all sizes. So like when we were in smaller cities, we had smaller cores and, yeah. you know, seeing, you know, my parents like run the nonprofit side and the church side and then um, in bigger cities, maybe there was like more help. Um, so I've seen kind of a lot of different styles of leadership through that. Um, but it was, it's definitely very different <laughs> to work for a small nonprofit. But it's one thing that I learned through, um, in my um, nonprofit management classes, that's something that like we talked about a lot was the difference between being an organization where like you are kind of have the 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 built in elements of a large organization versus in a small nonprofit where you kind of have your things hands in everything yes. because you have to. So I think that was one thing that actually kind of drew me there because I was really interested in that of like learning sure. the ins and outs of like, well, what does it really take to run a nonprofit? Like, what's all the things that right. are needed? You know, I didn't expect at the time that I would be doing like finance and HR and program directing and coming up with all these things, yeah. you know, it was, it was exciting. And so I think that was like one thing that I think one thing with a smaller nonprofit, it's like you have the excitement of, um, being very flexible, mm-hmm. um, because you have to be, because it depends on like what's coming in with funding. And so that was definitely a scary shift, um, in that six years, we've grown a lot, though, um, and we now have like a lot more of a stable team and more stable programs, um, which has been great. But it's definitely been, it was definitely a shift in the beginning. Yeah. So we've heard a little bit already, like kind of like created before you got yeah. there on staff. But um, it, let's just because it, it's hard to detail everything that you do because there's like a social enterprise component, yeah. there's a housing component, there's a street outreach. Um, let's just imagine we're in an elevator, and it's elevator to Tampa, so you might get like. 45 seconds, not just 10 seconds to to tell people what created does. Yeah. Um, so created at the end of the day, like we are, um, a a ministry that seeks to bring healing and restoration to women that have been sexually exploited, um, in the industry in Tampa or really, really, you know, throughout the state, we've served women from all over, but, um, so all of our programs have the elements of, 
you know, um, an outreach component. So we're always welcoming in sisters um, mm-hmm. who, are, who are still out there, um, who need resources, who need help. All of our programs have holistic care. So we are caring for the spiritual, the physical, um, and all of those needs in different ways. And all of our programs are about community. We know that we want to offer a place of belonging because that's really what leads to long-term sustainability for healing and recovery mm-hmm. is having a community of support. And all of our programs offer empowerment. So we want to help women feel empowered to make their own decisions, even Amen. in the small things. Um, so that's really like at the end of the day, whatever whatever it is that's happening at Created, those four things remain. So we have outreach, we have holistic care. Um, a community structure, and we also are empowering our women to make decisions about their lives and their future. So holistic care, that involves like a, a sheltering component, like how yeah. many b- beds you have or different shelters. And I, I know we can't talk about where they are, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have 16 beds total, and that's between three different um, programs. So the first is an emergency housing program. So we um, are able to bring women in directly from our outreach services or a lot of our women. So we do a jail outreach and a lot of them, like as they get released, they come into our emergency housing and that's a 30 to 90 day program where our goal is to get them into the next long-term option. Um, our, the second where we have nine beds is called our sanctuary program. And so that program, women can stay for up to two years as they work through the processes of healing and recovery. So that includes starting trauma therapy, going through drug treatment. Then it moves into learning job resources, getting a job, having a sustainable wage, saving money so that they can get long-term housing and employment. And that's mm-hmm. what's kind of required to graduate. And then the last is we have three beds where we have apartments on our main property um, that are for long-term housing. So we have some women that once they graduate, they just don't feel ready to be like fully separated. And so we might stay on long-term. Plus we also do um, most of them. It's the fear of keeping a sustainable job um, because that's just not been a reality for them in the past. And so we have, um, um, in, income-based housing for three apartments. Okay. Um, you can stay in long-term. And so we have three residents there usually. Um, and that's kind of our main housing programs, but all of them are really centered around um, helping our women like kind of decide what they want to do with their lives and then find work and create like sustainable income and sustainable housing for themselves. Awesome. And, 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 you, and you have a social enterprise component too that where we you, do. yeah. We do. So a big area for us, and this is where we're also hoping to grow in the future, is helping with that job skills and that employment piece because, um, you know, people don't always understand that with human trafficking victims, what it actually looks like on a day-to-day basis is being involved in prostitution and illegal activities. And most of our women have crazy arrest records because of that. And so a lot of that includes felonies. And for example, we have women that they may have like, you know, auto theft or they may have um, a really high drug charge, but all of those happened because their trafficker was also involved in those things. And so when he tells her, you have to go steal a car, well, she has to go steal a car, you know? Mm-hmm. And, when, and so like those, so the women really accumulate a lot of arrests. And so that makes it really difficult for employment. And now luckily in the state of Florida, yes. there is a law where women can get their records expunged, right. but that's a process that takes right now about two years, definitely over a year. Um, so in the meantime, like, how are they going to learn job skills? How are they going to start employment that they feel like dignified about and that they want to do? Yes. So we have two, uh, three elements right now. Um, so the first is we operate a boutique in the front of our location 
And so that's one way we can employ two women at a time that kind of learn how to run the store, um, do, do the cash and like all those type of things. We also have a, um, a social enterprise where they make bath, like bath products. So it's like soaps, body scrubs. We have women that like they hand stamp jewelry with different sayings on them. Right now we're selling a bunch that say Psalm 91 for okay. the pen. Um, people are really praying that scripture a lot. Um, and we also have some purses that the women hand sew. So we sell those at like local markets throughout the state the, where the women, um, they, they run the markets. They, they do all of the um, setup and the cleanup and all of that for it. Um, so that's the, that's one way that they're kind of learning that job training. And now the one that we're really excited about is one that we're starting. Okay. So we actually have a partnership with the art Institute of Tampa here. They, um, we were having a conversation with them a little over a year ago about just their school and how they could partner with Created. And they came up with the idea to do a culinary program where they're teaching women culinary skills. So it's a six week program. Um, and then our goal is to actually start a caterers. But the women who are doing the culinary program right now will also be like paired up with jobs. Um, so the culinary industry in Tampa, there's more jobs available in the food industry than any other industry in Tampa. Right. And so that's one of the why we're looking at that. Uh, so, um, and then the goal for the catering business is to offer like a safe place for the women to work while they're going through their healing process. And right. then we can pay them with jobs as they graduate from our programs. Yes. Um, we're really excited about that. So those are our three social enterprises. And then we also partner with a couple of different businesses um, for employment opportunities, but it's something that we're always always looking for. Awesome. Now I'm going to jump in here because there might be some people who are listening right now who are more connected to the Salvation Army. Like the Salvation Army is their church. They're Salvation Army officers. Um, they they know you through the Salvation Army. And then there's, of course, there's a whole group of people who are connections in Tampa, who are part of our advisory board, who are just members of our community, who love the ministry of the Salvation Army. Um, on the Salvation Army side, there are probably some people who are saying, oh, this is, this is great, but Man, she should be doing this for the army. This should be an army program. Andy, why aren't why aren't you why aren't you hiring her? Why don't you just go and you know buy her out and and then hire her? And this can be stuff. And and I, I, I no okay. Just the answer is no to that. Uh, but I, what I want to describe is like um, like there's a way of blessing and being grateful that God has given a capacity um, and a desire and an organization for you to, I mean, I just look at this as being just as I do with other partner agencies um, connected to um, the mission of the army, uh, maybe without a uniform and without the same kind of bones that are behind it um, of the, the structure. So let me, let me just t get ease people's conscious a little bit on the Salvation Army side who are probably just like really mad at me for like, not buying you out or something, um, which probably couldn't happen. So when, when Abby and I first arrived, um, there was a, we were running uh, a human trafficking program, the Salvation Army in Tampa Area Command was, and um, actually the very first week of the Salvation Army, uh, in the Salvation Army, the move, you're supposed to have what's called transition week, where you don't do anything except for take care of your house. Well, yeah. day two, I had multiple letters, complaints, all kinds of things rushing my way. And day three, I got a letter from you saying, when you get in the office, I need to talk to you. And um, so we we got that. And thankfully, thanks for letting me wait a little bit. But I, I couldn't wait at some point. Like I was responsible. Abby and I were responsible for this work. And so we learned about the deficiencies of our program. And 
Honestly, as you just heard Jill talk through the comprehensive nature of their program, really starting from the street outreach to all the way to like a total transition, it became clear to us, you helped us, and and this is my opportunity to say thank you, you helped us see um, like the Salvation Army, sometimes we think doing the most good means doing the most, and you hear of a great thing happening, and you think, well, we should do that great thing. Meanwhile, we were in significant financial distress, um, the, uh, you know, significant amount of debt. And we were just, we couldn't do the things that all the things that were happening through this, through this Salvation Army area. But you, you know, God used you very clearly to help us with that. So we made a plan to transition away from, um, that program for our temporarily suspend it to think about. And, and then meanwhile, we received a grant from the Department of Justice and for our human trafficking program. But even that grant wasn't going to enable, it was, it was a substantially like $300,000 over three years, but that wouldn't be enough to run the program. And we were just going to, it was going to be a real problem. So with your help and some others in the community, we are able to develop a system that enabled us to still be passionate and active in anti-human trafficking work while not having to try to do everything that you just described that you do. So we were able to put together a partnership um, that enabled us to do what we do well, which is we have capacity in our emergency housing program to be able to provide a safe place for people to come immediately. So one of the challenges, and you just correct me if I'm wrong here in a second, um, is that it's hard to have, emergency beds are hard to find in um, human trafficking, anti-human trafficking work, because people will find somebody in a brothel, strip club, or, or somebody who wants to get out, they want to escape, and the police who are very, we're very close to the police and the sheriff's office, don't have a place to take them right away because your program is very intense and wonderful and there's other programs like it but what we can do in the Salvation Army is we are good at emergency housing and we can take somebody and give them a safe place but what we're not I don't have set up to do is I'm not prepared to be able to have this full comprehensive program so what we're able to do is we're able to take those Department of Justice dollars that we had be able to support ourselves for providing like five to ten days for somebody from a human trafficking situation and then get them into a program like yours. And then kind of the beauty of it, and I know we're still waiting on some paperwork from the DOJ. Don't get me going about that. Okay. Um, but we, um, we then can pay you from the money we received to take care of the people who come into our program. So then we have a human trafficking uh, victim, a survivor who comes in and we, we, they get funneled to you. We support them. We pay you to take care of them because we can't do those, those, um, provide those right. same type of services. I know that was a long way around. Like me, I just wanted to describe to people, like in the Salvation Army, we have to realize we can't do everything. And even though this is all God's work and a wonderful thing, there's certain things we can do well. And maybe the best way to do it is to partner with people like you. Yeah, no, I think I agree. I mean, I think partnership is such an important part of the nonprofit community. And I think you have communities that do it really well and you have communities that don't. And I think particularly in in Tampa, like, I mean, there's already so many organizations that are working on the issue of human trafficking in different ways. And so there's only a few of us that are actually doing housing. There's a lot of organizations that do advocacy, which they do really great work with that um, and different things. And I think particularly in Hillsborough County, like you mentioned, emergency beds are really hard to come by. Um, and so we constantly, for because for a while for Created, we were only running the programs that I mentioned, which are like our longer term programs. We didn't have our own emergency housing, which we just started the last year. Right. Um, 
And so it is, there's that process of like when a woman is like, tells us on street outreach or somewhere like, or she's coming out of jail and she's like, I'm ready. It's like, okay, well, where do I put you until your spot's open? That's right. really the problem that everyone runs into. Cause there's a lot of programs that you can get people into, but it's like, where do I put you until that happens? And so emergency housing has been really key for that. And I think that's been a great um, way to kind of fill that gap is through the pro the program that you guys have started with us and other organizations. Um, and it's, I mean, it's been really helpful um, knowing that we have that funding covered so that we can continue offering those beds to the women that are coming in. Right. Uh, yeah, and I think, I mean, particularly in leading a small nonprofit, it's like, it always, um, I feel like, and, and this happens with the Salvation Army too, in my experience there, where it's like, we can get very territorial over the work that we're doing and think like, we have to do it all. But it's like, no, there's there's more of us in, this, in the kingdom. Like, you Amen. know, it's, isn't it good enough that it's for the kingdom, not necessarily for one thing? And so um, I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned in um, in my years as like managing nonprofit is like even just the other day I had somebody who came in and met and they were like, yeah, we're looking at starting an outreach. The first instinct is to be like, oh, well, we're doing that. And this is how yeah, yeah. <laughs> my second instinct, which I went with was like, okay, that's great. Like, let us train you and what we do. And then let me tell you where we aren't able to go right. that we women are. And then if you guys can go there, that's awesome. Yes. So it's like only through like those type of partnerships, are we going to actually reach all the women that we need to serve? And so Amen. I think that's, that's one thing that I really appreciate is like when those things happen that are collaborative and we're filling gaps and we're, and we're trying to figure out like who's best fit to serve in that way. Cause like you said, emergency housing is a totally different ball game than long-term care. Right. Right. Because you have to have so much support set up for the women as far as health, like the health needs are really high. Cause you have to remember victims that are coming in, they probably haven't seen a doctor hmm. in maybe years, but the damage that's been done to their body from like multiple rape is mm. extreme. And so it's like, there's always a lot of health needs. There's always the drug treatment needs. There's always the mental health and the trauma therapy needs. So it's, it's a totally different ballgame. So I think that's very, very wise when people can take a step back and say like, okay, what are we really good at and how can we partner? Right. Um, which, which I, we try to do a lot and created too. It's like having those means where it's like, okay, well, I don't think that I have to do everything, but I know what we do well is create a community of community space for women where they can heal and recover and also keeping our door open for the women that are still out there. That's right. the, and what I haven't mentioned this, but our location um, for our main office, we're actually on Nebraska Avenue. Right. So we actually keep our doors open to the women that are right there on street and have a drop-in center that runs daily. Oh, right. as So a lot of the times with the program, with the Salvation Army, that's been so great is we have a woman that comes into our drop-in center. We're able to call and get her a bed at the emergency shelter at the Salvation Army immediately. Right. And then transition her back over to one of our programs or another long-term program yes. within the next few weeks. And so that's been where it's worked really well. It's like we might meet them immediately, but we know there's a bed somewhere that we can get them and we don't have to wait for that process. Yes. Amen. Yeah. And, and, and kind of a hope of brighter things coming. You know, we're, we're in the middle of our capital campaign. Uh, it's called, actually called a capital venture project and we'll be completely renovating our facility at 1603 yeah. North Florida. And like we're tailoring several of those rooms for this, this capacity. I mean, we're kind of making lemonade out of some, <laughs> some lemons here that we've been dealt with with a facility, but it's coming. And this is like kind of a big, bigger leadership lesson here in the midst of this is like, um, particularly as it relates to Salvation Army ministry. Like I'm passionate about a lot of 
several things. Um, I wasn't particularly when I when Abby and I received our appointment to be Tampa area commanders, wasn't particularly passionate about emergency sheltering for single men and women. But yeah. I realized pretty quickly that that was the distinct niche and our board yeah. did that we filled. And, you know, it's actually easier uh, if you have a family shelter. That's a great sell. It's easy to raise yeah. money for that. And you can like set things up to raise money in that regard. And, and human trafficking, anti-human trafficking work has um, um, come to a place of, of like more prominence and, and um, yeah. more chic. I'm, I mean this in a – that's not the right <laughs> word. Like it's more popular now. And I thank God for that. I thank God for the the way that it's it's there. But it, and there's a way that man. Well, I want to do that. I want to do what you're doing. But yet, this is where God has led us. And 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 you helped me with that. I just want to th- thank you. Like when we we realized we have this money coming for this grant that we were not going to have a program for. Well, what do we do with it? We have, and that helped us see you. And then a few other community partners said, "Well, there is this need." Yeah. And can we figure out? So it took us like working at the federal government, no thanks in the future, but it took us like a year and a half to get them to restructure the grant. But it, I think it's a good testament to how we have to like adapt to the given needs of a community. Yeah, it's true. Um, well, th- thanks for sharing that. Well, what's, what's the future for created? Um, we are, uh, Lots of things. I mean, I just feel like we're continuing to grow. I think one thing that we're really concentrating on uh, over the for the next few years um, is expanding our services through like our drop in center and being able to offer like more case management services for women that are not residents. Mm -hmm. So because I mean, as I mentioned, we only have a capacity of 16 beds on our properties. But we serve an average of 79 women a week through all of our programming and outreaches. And so we are trying to figure out how can we do um, like case management services for women who are coming in and helping them with those quick goals of like, okay, I need a safe place to stay. Let's get you that. I need a job. Let's get you that. And then kind of helping them move forward with that. Um, So we're excited about that in the next year to kind of start a program for that. We also with kind of very much tied into that are really looking at, building out some more um, job training programs and um, not necessarily more social enterprise, but more partnerships with businesses and things like that. And also growing our social enterprise. Um, My ultimate goal as created is to be able to walk into any club or any, um, any on walk up to any woman on the street and be able to tell them like, I have a job for you because that meets the yes. immediate need that they are facing. Um, and that's something that we just aren't able to do right now. So that's my ultimate goal because, and people always say, you know, and that's one thing that people ask a lot, like through our outreach services is like, well, why aren't they would think that the women are like knocking down our doors, trying to get into our programs because there's a different option for them. But the reality is like they have what they believe is like security through money in their current situation. And so the biggest question we get when we go up to them on the street and are talking about our programs, is like, okay, but how am I, like, what am I supposed to do for work? Or right. how am I going to, nobody's going to, their biggest fear is nobody else is ever going to hire me again. Wow. And so that's the one thing that we want to be able to have a solution for that. So we're really excited to grow that. Those are our two big things for our vision is um, definitely growing um, some more services for the women through our outreach programs, including like trying to match people with jobs. So yeah. interesting. Really so could, could you help us see like um, maybe what the what's the biggest perception that people have 
about um, people involved in the sex industry that is wrong? Like, uh, mm-hmm. like what do we, what do, what do, what do, what do most people have in their mind about what this is? And, and yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Like I always tell people, like I constantly am having like culture shock because I live pretty close to where I work. And I'm like um, in the midst of like with the women who are in the street every day in my work. And then when I go to like a church or something to talk about what we do and like, I'm always like culture shock because people just don't understand what it actually looks like on a day to day basis, which is okay. Um, So I think the biggest perception is like a lot of people have seen movies like taken or they've seen even like some of the documentaries and things that are out there. And it's like these very specific stories of people who like were raised in like extremely normal lives and then just kidnapped and brought into trafficking. And that's not, usually the case for the most of our women most of our women um so the common age of entry into prostitution is 13 years old mm. and so most of our women and that's a very common thread in the stories that i know personally mm-hmm. and women really um, a lot of time it was their family member or someone very close to their home that started selling them as a child and then as they grow this became a learned behavior mm-hmm. and so a lot of the times the questions that we get is like well aren't the women just choosing to be there when it comes to strip clubs and prostitution that's the biggest misconception that women are just choosing to be there because mm-hmm. when you think if somebody was groomed from the age of 13 what really is choice then mm-hmm. uh, what is that? Because even if yes, now as a 30 year old woman, she might not have a pimp or somebody that's directly over her, but this is the only thing that she's been taught that mm-hmm. she's worth, that she can do. So what really is choice? Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think that's the biggest misconception that I hear in the community is that, and again, because our community is so used to strip clubs and we're so used to street prostitution that like, Oh, well the women are choosing to be there. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, and even within strip clubs, I mean, I think the a, a statistic, which I, I don't know, remember exactly where I read it, but um, I think it's around 96% of women that work in clubs um, admit to being sexually abused as a child from yeah. like a research that was done. So it's like, it's very true in any context of the sex industry. Um, so that, um, so I think those are the two main things is like one, thinking that it looks like this, like what we've seen in the movies when really it doesn't. And then also two, um, that the women are choosing to be there. Um, and I think that kind of um, what we, what I've learned from the women that we work with is like, really, I mean, our women come from a variety of different lifestyles. They have a variety of different family. There is no one way or like one path to becoming a victim of sex trafficking. It's, it's, it's so different, but the common threads are like a lot of the abuse and things that happen in childhood. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's that's a big reality and also like addiction is really tied in um to a lot of um the stories for the women that we heard whether it was that they were introduced to drugs at a young age or in majority of the time their trafficker or the person abusing them was introducing them to those things in order to keep them compliant um so those are probably the biggest things that i think come up as questions to me when it comes to trafficking and i think too um we actually had someone recently um volunteer in our drop-in center and they were they were shocked that like the women they just look like any other like especially in Tampa, if they just look like any other woman like on right. the street like maybe is not in great circumstances it's not like pretty woman or right exactly dressing up and like walking up and down the street it's it's less obvious than people may think and i think that there's a lot of um 
a lot of misunderstanding about that, about like what it could look like and what it is. So what's, is there something like that as a part of popular culture or even things that you hear people say often that, you know, you're like, now that you're so involved in this line of work that you would say, don't do that. <laughs> don't yeah, say that. Well, I mean, I think just the term plant at all is definitely right. one where people like definitely misuse that term. Um, the biggest thing for me, I think is um, really how in a lot of movies and shows that are popular in our culture right now, they really glorify strip clubs and the sex industry in general. I mean, there's a, there's a big push in certain areas of the, of the country to push for um, sex work to be legitimate, legitimate, legitimatized as like real work and to try to get resources. And when you listen to survivors, like they don't support that at all. Like mm. women who are that um, aren't supporting that. And so um, that's probably the two, the biggest things of just like the glorification of like what a strip club is. I mean, anytime I, that ever, that's probably the biggest like trigger for me is when I see stuff about sex, sex industry and movies. And I'm like, if you walk into any strip club in our town, which I do often for outreach, they do not look like that. Right. <laughs> like CD, it's, it's, it's just not, it's not what they show. And so um, I think there's this, that, that kind of perpetuates this idea of like, oh, it's not that bad. Right. And it's like, you, you've never actually seen like right. what it was inside. So. I mean, unfortunately, I've had to interact in, and I've not been involved with the strip club ministries, which may be something yeah. we can partner with you on to be a part of in the future. Yeah. But um, the, uh, e- e- even with the majority, 75% of the people who stay at our Red Shell Lodge mm-hmm. are men. Now, that's just a, the capacity we have at the moment. Um, but even men be involved in, in prostitution yeah. um, and in how different that is than um, some like pitch, be, you know, picture of a beautiful person on the side of the road, like just choosing to do this, you know, coming from yeah. a country home or whatever and just making a living this way. It's just a yeah. very very different and um it's one more one more point that came up earlier you talked about um the connection i mean between um prostitution and um strip clubs or pornography i'm not sure that that is always clear for people could you yeah could you like there's like there's rules and um um laws about that like uh, i don't know i've never been to i'm sorry to say and admit just here i've never been to a strip club and for well (laughs) uh, i should say i haven't been a part of any of the outreach ministry i'm ashamed about that i'm very proud of the fact that i've never been to a strip club but i've I've heard that i that there's like a distance or these sort of things so like um that's how people defend it sometimes yeah i mean i think it's so it's so variable but i think in general like what we usually talk about within created is a lot of the women um or a lot of traffickers like start the women out in these things that they feel like oh it's not that bad mm-hmm. like a strip club. so somebody might have the woman that's working with them start working in a strip club and then they start having them take johns and things and so it's like it can be it it can very much be like a slippery slope but then also um you know we've had situations where we've been on outreach and like we see a van pull up and drop off like four girls that walk into the club like obviously something else is going on there you know so i think there's a lot of there's just it's just a hotbed for it to continue occurring because um you know even though there might be and and i will say on outreaches that i've been on we do there are some women that are just like look I'm just doing this to pay off my school debt and I'm in college and like, you know, that type of thing. But there's also women that are very much like, no, like I get dropped off by my boyfriend every day and he picks me up and he's the one who gets the money. So I think it's like both things 
can be and are happening in all of the clubs that we go okay. into. Um, and I think the same with like pornography, there are, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's just definitely pornography is definitely used a lot by traffickers. Um, uh, there's, that's a whole, I mean, there's just, it, and it also just leads a lot into women just taking the other steps. And even within the industry, a very interesting that thing that happens with some of the women that we serve, like we might be meeting a woman in the club and she's like, Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I am doing this and like, I am, I am, you know, sleeping with some of the customers, but well, at least I'm not on the street. Or right. I am doing that, but at least da da da. But it's like it's all kind of the same kind of slope in the same like there. There's just like this environment that they try to make themselves feel like, oh well, at least I'm on this side of it, and I'm not on that side of it. And then even in street prostitution, you'll hear like, well, at least I'm over here, and I'm not stuck in this motel. Right. You know, so it's like the women are very aware that like every it's happening in all of these locations, and it is something that like maybe as. Um, as things change or if they get away from their trafficker, they might end up in another part. So it's like all of them are just very interconnected. And like, it's very, very normal that like women that were serving that were involved in street prostitution or were part of escort services that their traffickers um, made them do pornography. And so it's it's all connected. Yes. I just like, I, there's some people right now and maybe they're listening, maybe you're driving your car and maybe you participated in some of these things. And I just, in your feeling conviction. I just want you to know that that conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. And this is like, God has put this within our very DNA to like who we are, how we're created, to long for relationships um, and the, the complementary nature of men and women are brought together to in order to point to marriage, ultimately to bearing children, and ultimately to our the relationship that Jesus has with the church. And Jesus loves the church so much and loves his creation so much that every person is created in his image and his creation is good. And sex in itself is good. Um, and it has this beautiful opportunity to express the eternal realities of our relationship with Christ. But just like everything else, because of God, because of free will, this can be thwarted and this can be abused and twisted. And that's what we see happening here. Um, just like kind of like calling out some of the things that have guided the Salvation Army in Tampa is that we we have every staff member kind of repeat this line over and over again. I'm a person loved by God, serving people loved by God. And that changes hopefully that we, we're, we're valued ourselves because we're created in God's image, but also the people who come to us have um, are all created in God's image. And then the other side is like we have this statement that we use, we we exist because every person can be the person God has called him or her to be. And yeah. even people who are on the street, people who are caught in prostitution, God can call them to be a certain type of person. And that means like developing skills and capacities so they can thrive in life. And so like, I think one of the things that happens is that we almost create a, a heresy when we act as if people aren't created in this way. And here the word created kind of keeps coming in, yeah. right? That w- people are created with this capacity. And we deny the way that God has created them. And we almost act as if their bodies don't matter. And that's really a, a Gnostic heresy that we adopt. So uh, I'm going back again, talking to somebody who's maybe just you're, you've looked at pornography in the last hour as you're listening to this. Like, okay, I'm telling you, you're involved in this. Okay. And that's okay. And I have, as a pastor, I deal with a lot of folks who deal, who are, you know, addicted to pornography. I'm not here to condemn you. Instead, I want you to know there's a better way 
a better way to live. And just know, maybe hearing Jill and hearing of the you know 79 people every week who come into our program, they're impacted by this. So if you're involved in that, I'm just letting you know that you can repent and that there's forgiveness available for you. And God has a brighter path for your life that doesn't involve the involve denying the fact that people are created in his image mm-hmm. and den- denying their personhood. So I Sorry to interrupt you, Jill, there for a preaching moment. I just felt like, I just feel like there are people who are involved in this and I, I it, feel, correct me if there was something there I said that maybe is a little off. No, no, I think that was great. I think you're exactly right. And I think also like for those people, you know, it's our culture like glorifies these things and it also um, normalizes these things. But the reality is behind the clubs and behind the pornography, like there are women that are being exploited mm-hmm. and there are women that are being abused on a daily basis. And so I think that's the reality behind this glorification of like the sex industry. Mm-hmm. So, so when, and when, when you participate and when people participate in these, like, you know, you think, Oh, it's not so bad, you know, just on my phone, it's just whatever. Okay. Right. You're, you're actually a part of this industry and this yeah. is, not i'm just telling you this is not what god wants for your life if you're involved in that and if we can help where's some where's some place people could go to um you know participate in um your work or um maybe some even national things that are available that people might know about that you could help us yeah well people can always check out like as far as like learning more about created you can always check out our website which is www.createdwomen.com okay and then um and that i mean obviously we're pretty specific to tampa um and so there are a couple other agencies i know if you're looking at like well how does this um issue impact my community like what's going on in my state or my city i would really recommend going on to um the polaris website which is p o l a R I S. Um, they have this, it's, and I, I think it's the players foundation, but they, you can look up by state, like how your state's doing in the issue of human trafficking. And even some of it breaks down into cities and different mm-hmm. things, and just what you have going on there. That's a great resource. Um, and then there's also like shared hope international and other places, do a lot of trainings and stuff like that for those who are interested in learning more. Um, and I would also recommend, um, you know, there's also a lot of, uh, I don't know, I'm off the top of my head, but there's a lot of um, websites and like, I think one of them is like Triple X Church and places where if you're struggling with pornography and those things that there are places that you can reach out to as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and for created, I mean, I would definitely say like go on and like our Facebook page and our Instagram. That's where we share the most recent updates about our work usually. Okay. So that's created women. And you can buy soap uh, and all kinds of stuff there. Yeah, okay. and you can buy soap and things and we share all that type of stuff on our Facebook all the time. So. Awesome. Well, and, and just there's no competition here, friends. This is these you have to understand the nature of and uh, social service work is partnership, and that's how we that's how we succeed in a community. In the nonprofit community, we've had to learn this. You know, along yeah. this is has this is how it has to be. There's limited yeah. resources, but Jillian, we're so thankful that you follow God's path in your life. Um, to this important ministry and we're thankful we're, we're honored to be a partner with you and we just trust that God will continue to lead you and Paul and your team at Created to the place that he's calling you to be. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. God bless you. Next week on the podcast, we have Captain Dr. John Clifton, Salvation Army Officer from the United Kingdom. If you'd like to learn more about us, please feel free to check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks so much for joining us.
see you next time.